Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. We get into a, a bit more um, content and uh, teaching about uh, this approach to practice. Um, wanted to invite Dawn uh, to say a few words um, which we uh, do at uh, each retreat these days um, about our Spirit Rock has a commitment to what's called the DEI um, uh, initiative or objective diversity, equity, and inclusivity. Uh, and we've done and we keep on learning to do more, to be as conscious as we can around making this a welcoming, uh, environment for everyone um, and uh, want to name that uh, at the beginning of our retreats and uh, I asked Dawn if, if she'd say a few words on this. Hi everyone. So um, I think, I forget who now, but uh, I think it was James last night who said that the tradition we're practicing is uh, Vipassana. And it has been around for about 2,600 years. And um, it's a practice that I love so much. And one of the reasons why I love this practice so much is that in order to join the Buddha's community way back when, um, one of his requests was that the monks and nuns who would join his sangha would have to leave behind their names and their belongings and really just take up robes and a bowl, an alms bowl. And um, at that time, there was the caste system. And, um, and so what I, I particularly love about the Buddha's approach about leaving your name and belongings behind is that it doesn't matter who you are or how you're showing up. And in that way, he was a radical. And I like to think that by extension, we're radicals too, not just us up here, but you as practitioners as well. And one of the ways that we're radicals is the Buddha was really um, concerned or, or motivated by the lessons that, uh, of the heart and mind. And I think that is something that we all can have access to. And I think that's what the Buddha was trying to do as well when he would say, doesn't matter what caste you're coming from, how you were born into this world, but you are... Um, uh, you are worthy. You, it's a birthright, actually, to, to receive these teachings. And so um, whenever I talk about, about just naming uh, different ways we might be showing up, I like to start by inviting you to just look around. Maybe you don't even have to change your position yet, but look up front at the teaching team and just notice who is here and who is not. And we're very aware that it is not quite representative. And that's an effort that James mentioned is an effort by um, Spirit Rock to change in the years to come. But just to notice who is here and who is not. And it's very broad strokes. You might be zoning in on, say, skin color or age or ableism, or maybe you saw us writing notes, so for right-handed or left-handed, who knows? But just to notice that. 
And then to also start looking around the room and you don't have to make eye contact if you don't want to, but just again, noticing who is around, who is not. And just notice also any layers you add to that in terms of say class, socioeconomic um, uh, status, etc. And then in particular, I'd like to just name things um, or name certain ways that we might be showing up and how we're welcome regardless. So wherever you're born, you're welcome here. Whatever your first language is, le mien et le français, par exemple. Your socioeconomic status, your level of education, your country of origin, how you identify in terms of ethnicity or the color of your skin your beliefs or your religion, how you identify um, sexually or your sexual orientation, your mental or physical ability, regardless of what that is, you're welcome here. Your mental or emotional states. So you've come to awaken joy, but you can be embodying sadness. And that's welcome here, of course. Your age, and I always like to add in the right or left-handed part because we might laugh at that and might think, what's the point? But I don't know how long, maybe 150 years ago, I heard that left-handed people were considered witches or something like that. And, and so they were cast out and even killed in their communities. Thankfully, we've evolved since then. And yet, there's a lot more room for us to evolve, given this list and how a lot of people who identify differently on this list can still be marginalized. And so it is part of our mission from Spirit Rock, but I would also say in particular, our, the teaching team of this retreat, we really hope that we co-create a space where you can feel welcome and belonged. We are trying our best. We may mis make mistakes. And I haven't consulted the teachers with this, but I, if we do make mistakes, I invite you to let us know, or at least maybe let me know since I'm not, I'm not I didn't consult with them. <laughs> okay, yeah, okay. Because this is how we learn. We are practicing mindfulness and we might have moments of mindlessness or also we just don't know what we don't know. And I think this is one way that as a Sangha, we can grow um, together basically. So thank you. So, um, uh, at this time, um, some of the days, the first few days at least, um, want to offer additional um, teachings and uh, encouragement reminders about um, inclining the mind towards well-being. Because it's, 
uh, it takes a, a bit more encouragement for many people um, to do that. As uh, Rick Hansen, I mentioned last night, uh, that neuroscience expert and uh, deep uh, Dharma practitioner, as he says, um, the way our brains are wired up, they're uh, Teflon for positive experiences and Velcro for negative experiences. And that's often how it works. I came across one study that said, if, so, if you have a sharp encounter, a negative encounter in one's life, for most people it takes approximately seven positive encounters to kind of come back to stasis and feel okay. Uh, but we can practice so that that doesn't have to be so uh, imbalanced. And the more we really let ourselves uh, be touched by the goodness around, we start to shift that default setting. And this is from the Buddha. This is a translation uh, from the Dhammapada, his collection, uh, collection of his teachings by Thomas Byram, where he says, live in joy, in love, even among those who hate. Live in joy, in health, even among the afflicted. Live in joy, in peace, even among the troubled. Look within, be still, free from fear and attachment. Know the sweet joy of the way. He's not saying to ignore or saying, oh well, too bad for those others. It's just that he's saying it's possible to find a place of peace inside that's not um, torn up by the suffering around us, overwhelmed or feel that it's not okay to open up to well-being inside. <clears throat> Sometimes people, uh, there are a number of different ways that we can um, sabotage ourselves around well-being. And one is very understandably um, we are moved by the suffering in the world and around us. And there can be this feeling of, oh, is it okay for me to open up to joy and well-being if I'm, if I'm privileged? Everybody here who can be on a retreat like this in one way or another is privileged in the, the, the human experience. Or if I, if I have um, uh, different... Um, if I'm just a, a, have a temperament where I, I delight in things and others around that I really care about are having a hard time. Uh, the way I see it, if we are feeling guilty about opening up to our own well-being and so out of that, whether consciously or unconsciously, we don't let ourselves experience that and uh, feel, uh, go around uh, suppressing our well-being, you're not adding to the, uh, the measure of well-being and happiness and, and joy in this world. We can be touched by others' ease and centeredness and goodness. So 
the way I see it, the more we can open up to all of the beautiful qualities inside, as the Buddha suggested, the more we allow them to shine through. And if you're somebody who might have such caring about the world that it's hard for you to um, allow yourself, I, I just want to share with you, which is an understandable place that's coming from real compassion and caring. It's a beautiful quality. But I want to share with you a, a quote that I, that I um, love by Howard Zinn, who um, was a great historian who wrote The People's History of the United States, the unwhitewashed history, saying the good, the bad, and the ugly. He, he also happened to be John Kabat-Zinn's father-in-law, in case you're familiar with John Kabat-Zinn, who brought mindfulness to, uh, to the secular world. And he wrote in this uh, essay, entitled The Optimism of Uncertainty. This is a very realistic human being saying, don't close your eyes to the suffering in this world. He writes, an optimist isn't necessarily a blithe, slightly sappy whistler in the dark of our time. To be hopeful in bad times is not just foolishly romantic. It's based on the fact that human history is a history not only of cruelty, but also of compassion, sacrifice, courage, kindness. What we choose to emphasize in this complex history will determine our lives. If we see only the worst, it destroys our capacity to do something. But if we remember those times and places, and there are so many where people have behaved magnificently, this gives us energy to act and at least the possibility of sending this spinning top of a world in a different direction. So don't see this as a selfish or self-indulgent practice. This is a gift to the world because we, we can awaken that goodness in others. It's contagious. Just like anger and fear and smallness and mean-spiritedness can be contagious, so can kindness and compassion and love and wisdom and presence. And so this is just kind of returning to your true nature. I remember I said last night, we all want to be happy. We were born with a, a, a love of life. We see a, a baby, and if that baby is fed and uh, has their diapers changed and receives even just a little bit of love, what do they do? They squeal with delight. This is who we are, and, and this is why the Buddha said, as we did the refuges last night, take refuge in the Buddha right inside because you have this capacity, and that's what that refuge means. I take refuge in this capacity to awaken and in all the goodness inside. And just to remind you in case you forget, I want to share with you a picture of um, Chloe Thomas, uh, um, a baby who was uh, from in uh, Melbourne, Australia, 
who was born uh, eight weeks premature. This picture was not yet when she reached nine months after conception, but just to remind you of your true nature, uh, meet mm. Chloe. Mm. This is you. Do you remember? It was. We all have this capacity, so it's, it's just uncovering or remembering or um, deepening our connection and awakening to what's already here. <clears throat> and last night, just reminding you, I, I mentioned about those three principles that are the cornerstone of, of this um, uh, way of, of practicing that noticing, um, noticing wholesome states, noticing what brings you joy, noticing true, where true well-being is, uh, noticing the gladness that arises with them, and then over time to deepen that access and that habit. But I want to just mention a little bit more about the first one, about wholesome states, what in the Pali language is called kusala, K-U-S-U-L-A, kusala, which is usually translated as wholesome or healthy states, states of well-being, as opposed to akusala, the A in front of it means unwholesome or unhealthy states, states that are suffering and that lead to more suffering. They're all part of being human. In the Buddhist psychology, there's 52 mental factors, some wholesome, some unwholesome, not good and bad, it's just the palette of human experience. Um, and then there are some that are neither wholesome nor unwholesome. And the Buddha said, know how to work with the states of suffering when they arise, not to judge them or get rid of them, but just know how to work with them skillfully and know how to cultivate states of um, well-being when they arise and even deepen and strengthen them. And that will provide the, not only happiness in the, the immediate moment, but the conditions for the deepest kind of happiness, the, the awakened mind to emerge. It's hard for the awakened mind to emerge in fear and confusion and hatred. Uh, although in a moment we can wake up out of that but it's much easier to wake up from a state of, of wholesome uh, and, and beautiful and ease and open kind of states. And last night when I, when I asked you uh, to remember what it feels like uh, when you're experiencing joy, um, people said warm and alive and vital and all of those states, kusala, states of well-being are expansive. There's a quality of the, the mind and the body and the heart opening, whether it's delight or kindness or generosity or caring and compassion. All of those states, there's an open quality to them. All of the Akusala, states of suffering, are contracted. We get tight, as you know. 
we get agitated, we get fearful. You can just feel with all of those states, the contraction in the mind and in the heart and in the body, in every level. So this is really learning to hold that contraction and start to notice just even in the noticing, we start to create space and open up and to open up to even holding the difficult with kindness, you're starting to open that channel. And here's something to keep in mind. You don't have to, as I sometimes say, you don't have to go for a gusher, you know, awakening joy, you know, just the slightest movement from contraction to expansion, from anger to tenderness around the anger, from um, um, funk to um, trust that it can open up. Any slight movement from contraction to holding or opening or when there is a true feeling of well-being to aliveness, that's good enough. As soon as you, if you open up the channel, then just pay attention to that shift. And just in the paying attention to it, you give it more life and energy. It's a very interesting thing. So don't worry about getting joyful. Just be right where you are and even holding your experience with a tender heart, that's enough. And we'll be talking about that as, it, uh, as we continue. Now, um, as I said, using those principles, um, we can consciously cultivate certain wholesome states that are spoken of in the teachings. And when we do it with, uh, with consciousness, with um, uh, saying, oh, I can practice this, I can practice generosity, I can practice compassion, I can practice gratitude, that we incline the mind towards that state. So what we'll be doing, and I don't know if we'll get a chance to go through all 10, but just want to give you, uh, make sure you're, you see a number of them, how you can consciously cultivate them. Uh, and we'll go through many, if not all of the 10, we'll at least touch on, uh, on each. But I wanted to particularly, uh, in this, this next uh, few minutes, um, just put out the, um, the seed a little bit about the first two that start this whole process in motion. And through the talks and maybe some of the afternoon sessions and uh, through various times, we'll touch on the others. But I wanted to spend particular time in uh, planting the seed to keep in mind these first two and just to understand how this supports this practice. Mm. The first one, which the Buddha 
said was the basis of all karma, of all of our unfolding, is intention. This one teaching he says, um, intending, I tell you, is karma. Uh, Through intention, uh, through body, speech, and mind, we create our karma. Or as it says in uh, the one Tibetan teaching, everything rests on the tip of one's motivation. Now, often we're not aware of our intentions. They, they come just out of habit because they've been practiced. But to shift that and see that intention, once you have an intention to face in a certain direction or to cultivate something. You had an intention to learn to play the piano. That's how it starts. Or get really good at, at, uh, at uh, throwing a basketball into a hoop. That's how it starts. I'm going to do this or I want to at least give it my best shot. In neuroscience, there's the notion that intention primes the brain to cultivate in a certain way. Or as, uh, as one inspiring teacher uh, said many years ago, whatever the mind can conceive and believe, it can achieve. Or as the Buddha says, mind is the forerunner of all things. He says, we are what we think with our thoughts we make the world. So it starts with having the intention in this particular approach to practice to open up to more well-being. And sometimes we don't have that intention, maybe not so consciously. Oh yeah, I wish I could be happy. You know? Or, um, well, I wish I could get rid of this suffering. But to really put right in the center of your your life and your intention, I want to be happy. You know, we say in the loving kindness practice, may you be happy or may I be happy. That's an intention. And once you have that decision, then the universe seems to respond and you start to, uh, to notice everything that will support that. We, we have something called the confirmation bias in our brains where our brain will actually notice what confirms our beliefs. So if we believe that everybody around us is gonna disappoint us, it will notice all the ways that that belief is confirmed and miss the ways that it might not be so. And if we have an intention to notice all the good inside, we might slightly start to notice more, especially with encouragement and with practice. Here I want to share with you one example of somebody who made an intention to change and uh, had a great rippling effect. This is from... uh, Uh, Martin Seligman, the father of positive psychology, uh, which 
is, has shifted psychology in the last 20 years from abnormal psychology and seeing all the pathology. And I, I, I was a psych major, and when I, I, I took psych and I read the abnormal psych textbook, every chapter it's, yep, that's me. Yep, that's me too. Yep, there I am again. Uh, got a little dicey when it got to the psychosis, but uh, <laughs> yep, that's me too. I can see that too. And he said, no, why don't we take a look at, at what well-being is? So this is how positive psychology started. He writes about this. The notion of a positive psychology movement began at a moment in time a few months after I'd been elected president of the American Psychological Association. It took place in my garden while I was weeding with my five-year-old daughter, Nikki. I have to confess that even though I write books about children, I'm really not all that good with them. I'm goal-oriented and time-urgent, and when I'm weeding in the garden, I'm actually trying to get the weeding done. Nikki, however, was throwing weeds into the air and dancing around. I yelled at her. She walked away and after a while came back and said, Daddy, I want to talk to you. <laughs> yes, Nikki, I said. Daddy, do you remember before my fifth birthday, from the time I was three to the time I was five, I was a whiner. I whined every day. When I turned five, I decided not to whine anymore. That was the hardest thing I've ever done. And if I can stop whining, you can stop being such a grouch. <laughs> this was an epiphany for me. In terms of my own life, Nikki hit the nail right on the head. I was a grouch. I'd spent 50 years enduring mostly wet weather in my soul and the last 10 as a walking nimbus cloud in a household full of radiant sunshine. Any good fortune I had was probably not due to being grumpy, but in spite of it. In that moment, I resolved to change. And that was the start of the positive psychology movement. Just that resolving to change was the start. Now, it doesn't happen all at once. You can't say, okay, I'm going to be happy now. We have deeply practiced habits that take patience and persistence and intention. And so you have to be really kind every time you start seeing habits that don't serve you. And... That's what happens as you start to pay attention. You notice all the things that get in the way, whether it's a way, uh, getting in the way of awakening joy or of calm or of kindness or of whatever. You start to notice all of those things. That sounds like it's awful, but it's great news because until you notice, you're caught in those habits. But as soon as you start to see them, that's when you can change them a little at a time, first with kindness for the, the deep ingrained habit, and then a little bit of time, uh, every time you see yourself doing it another way, yes. Don't get caught in all the there I go again. Like I said, with no, noticing your mind wandering, oh, come on back. Okay. 
So it's being aware, once you make the intention, anything that's positive that is supporting that intention makes uh, your shifting your reality. Especially if you don't blame yourself for the ways that you keep on doing it the old way. Thomas Edison, when he was um, uh, later on in his life, uh, he was being interviewed about inventing the light bulb. And there were 2,000 attempts, supposedly, he, he made before he got it. And this journalist once uh, said, Mr. Edison, how did it feel to fail 2,000 times? And Edison looked at him and he said, my good man, I did not fail. I invented the light bulb and it was a 2,000 step process. So you just keep on heading in that direction and that's how you change. I want to share with you one other story about intention and then do a little bit of a practice with you. Lest you think that, well, yeah, if you've got it good and things are going well, it's easier to to be uh, to find happiness inside. And I, this is a story from a book that I love and recommend highly, a book called How We Choose to Be Happy by two, two guys who've become uh, good friends, Rick Foster and Greg Hicks, who for three years did research on certifiably happy people. They, they uh, traveled around the US and uh, North America and Europe um, and found 320, I think was the final count, people who they said, these are happy people. And there were nine common denominators that they, all, that they found. Some of them are the 10, are part of the 10, not all of, of them. But um, the first step, the first common denominator was intention. And many of these people uh, had an awakening that shifted the way, the direction of their life. And this is one story that has always touched me about a woman they name Adele. She, sa they, she says, in one horrible 24 month period, my life evaporated. I lost everything. My house burned down to the ground. It was the Oakland fire in 1991. Leaving me with nothing, no clothes, photos, furniture, no material reminder of my previous life. During that time, both of my parents died unexpectedly. My husband left me for a younger woman. At the same time, my restaurant went bankrupt. My best friend moved to Seattle. Even the dog died. I had nothing. I was so filled with grief, I thought maybe God was somehow preparing me to die. Everything was gone. Maybe this was some monumental lesson in letting go and that I should let my life go too. But as my initial shock began to clear, a feeling that I wanted to live outweighed all of my thoughts about death and I began to see there was hope among the ashes. There was one big opportunity here. I had 
a clean slate. As long as I had to start over and create a whole new life, I was going to create a happy one. I wanted to feel whole. I was sure that I wanted to embrace everything in life, the good and the bad. I wanted a feeling of contentment and to feel rested and gentle. I wanted to feel unafraid, to feel I could handle anything that came my way. And I wanted to feel this way throughout the rest of my life. In spite of my grief, I could see that this all added up to happiness for a lifetime. And Rick and Greg, they said, and they, she writes about it in the book, it wasn't instant. It took about five years to feel all of the pain, all of the grief, all of the confusion. She had a commitment to not numb herself during that time. That was the one thing that she just knew she had to do. And over time, she processed all of that pain and came out this radiant being. And they say, when she comes into a room, she just lights up the room. And that's often the case when people have gone through really deep pain and suffering. If they somehow have learned how to process it and come out the other end, there's gratitude and, um, and, and happiness on the other side. So with that in mind, I just want to uh, um, invite us to get in touch with our intention. Um, and for this retreat and beyond, you signed up on a, an Awakening Joy retreat. There must be something in you that was motivated. Yeah, that might be a pretty good idea. Okay, No matter what your mind might say. But it all starts with the intention to place well-being at the center of your life the intention to be happy or to be content or to find ease or whatever the words that resonate for you. So I just want to um, invite you first just to close your eyes for a moment. And just envision, as the Buddha said, whatever one frequently thinks and ponders upon becomes the inclination of their mind. And that deepening of habits is what actualizes and manifests. So first get in touch with the fact that perhaps you do really want to be happy. and allow whatever comes and gets or gets in the way to be there. Just don't get lost in those thoughts. Just get in touch with the sincere wish. I really do want ease and peace and even happiness in my life, like Adele. And perhaps just imagine having gone through a retreat, this retreat, and over the course of the next months, or year, staying connected to that intention and becoming more and more familiar and adept at noticing all the goodness in your life 
and letting that be the place that you live from while opening up and holding all the, the inevitable pain and sorrow of, that comes with being human. Just imagine what it would, might look like a year from now or two years from now or five years from now, getting more and more practiced at that how it would be for those around you, your loved ones, people that you encounter, that you meet. And if this feels like a good thing to do, a good endeavor or project, See if you can get in touch with the intention to do your part to bring that about. No report card, no timetable, no pass fail for life, but just that you show up with that heartfelt decision to keep going in that direction and letting life support you. There's magic in this decision. And even if it's just as one person in, in one course said, I'll just give it a shot, that's okay. You might just get in touch with words that really speak to you as your intention. And stay connected to this throughout this retreat and hopefully beyond. So this is the beginning, the, whole, the start of the whole process. And we won't go into it now, but just say a word that widening our intention so that it's not just about, oh, so I can feel good, but that the deepening intention and the deepening source of well-being is to see that your own well-being is something that becomes a gift to the world and that when you include others in the beneficial manifestation of that, then that up-levels the whole experience, widening your intention so that it becomes, it's given in a spirit of contribution. Okay, so that's the start and I'll just mention Briefly, the second tool, which is mindfulness, what we're doing here. The main practice that 
is taught here at Spirit Rock and that the Buddha spoke of as the most direct way in the discourse on mindfulness. He says there is one most direct way for overcoming sorrow, lamentation, ending grief, despair, and realizing the highest happiness. And that is the cultivation of mindfulness. Of those wholesome factors, those, the 52 mental factors, of the wholesome ones, mindfulness, or of all of them, mindfulness has the one unique property, which is why the Buddha said what he did. Mindfulness is the one factor that weakens all the unwholesome factors and strengthens all the wholesome ones. That's pretty cool, isn't it? Just by being mindful, you are weakening the forces of grasping and aversion and confusion and fear, and you are strengthening the forces of understanding and love and wisdom and kindness and patience. So mindfulness becomes the tool to awaken joy, particularly not only that it reduces the unwholesome and can cultivate the wholesome, but when a wholesome state is here, when you pay attention to it, you strengthen and amplify that wholesome state. That's why I often say, don't miss it when it's here. Because all you need to do is pay attention to it and notice, oh, hmm, this is how it feels to feel good. And you have a, a much deeper experience. It's not just an idea, it's an embodied experience. So with the rest of these wholesome states that we'll talk about, when you are experiencing them and you apply mindfulness, you strengthen that state. That's why I call it the, the basic tool for a joyful life. As a simple way, if you're relatively new to practice, to show you how mindfulness works, because sometimes it can be this elusive, well, what is mindfulness anyway? Just uh, do this little exercise with me. Put your hand out in front of you. And now move it slowly back and forth. And as you're doing this, close your eyes and put all your attention on feeling the movement the vibration, the whatever it feels like. Just notice it. Right now, is there any worry? Is there any confusion? Any wanting or obsession? Is just feeling the movement. Any tomorrow or yesterday? Just feel it. Okay, you can open your eyes. Congratulations, you were just mindful. Yeah. 
It wasn't like the sky opened up and you got zapped and wow, that was cosmic. Although it can be, actually. But in that moment, the mind isn't caught up in its stories and in its fears and in its worries and in its whatever it is. It's just a moment of balance. Oh, moving the hand. And there's a very restful, complete state in that. And the same is true whether you're feeling the breath or hearing a sound or feeling a sensation in the body or taking a step and knowing that you're putting your foot down or drinking a cup of tea or going to the bathroom or taking a shower or whatever you do or brushing your teeth. In the moment that you're here, you're here and you're not lost. And it's a very restful place and turns out to be a place that uh, is, uh, becomes tremendously deepening and satisfying. It takes a little while to get here, I should warn you. It takes about two or three days to land. Even if you've been doing this for 20 or 30 or more years. So you gotta be patient with this, but it's actually possible the more you practice bringing your mind back in a loving way each time and being here, you start to see, wow, oh, this is where life is happening. How cool, this is the best place to be. It's really possible. So take every activity as a moment that you can wake up and be here in the present moment and uh, you'll start to see for yourself the miracle of mindfulness. And when you get caught and lost in your, uh, in your stories, any moment has the possibility of waking up. And I want to share with you, uh, uh, just in last, lastly, uh, uh, a lovely anecdote that um, I love of how this works and how one can wake up in any moment with mindfulness, have a different way to hold experience. This is from uh, our dear friend and colleague, Sylvia Borstein, beloved mindfulness teacher. And she was sharing at one Awakening Joy class uh, about how mindfulness can wake us up. And she was talking about this experience where she uh, was in New York visiting a friend and um, she arranged uh, to meet the friend for a theater performance and she decides to take a bus to go to the theater. And she says, as the bus crept along through the heavy traffic, um, Sylvia starts worrying, I'm gonna be late. I'll miss the curtain. My friend will worry about what happened to me. I shouldn't have taken the bus. The subway would have been so much faster. Figuring she could walk faster than the bus was going, Sylvia got off. And of course, as I'm walking, she says, the bus passes me by. And now I'm thinking, I should have taken a cab. Sylvia has been meditating for many years, but she's also, by her own admission, been fretting for even longer than that, many, many more years. And so she uh, continues telling her story, and she describes, there she is running down Broadway in high heels with a cold wind whipping around her. 
And then she says, all of a sudden I have the thought, oh, what am I doing? Oh, I'm grumbling. That's what's happening. That's a moment of mindfulness. Up until then, I was caught up in a habit-driven narrative, an editorial comment about what was happening. But the moment at which the mind says, oh, Sylvia, dear, you're grumbling, the lens switches, and suddenly the truth of that moment is, I'm a 71-year-old woman running down Broadway in the middle of winter in high heels. That is far out. That is an extremely fortunate thing to be able to do. It changed everything. I felt proud and I actually hoped a lot of people saw me. <laughs> so you see, in a moment, you can wake up from the dream or the nightmare that your mind might be in and just say, oh, oh sweet dear, you're just, getting, you're just having a meltdown, that's all. You know. <laughs> Oh, yes, it's okay. You just got caught in that old habit. Oh, tape 17, paranoia. Yes, you know that. In that moment, you're switching the lens to the mindfulness of the story rather than believing the story. So we'll be talking a lot more and practicing a lot more about mindfulness uh, and uh, and the other wholesome states, but just know every single moment that you're mindful, you are deconditioning old habits, weakening habits of grasping, aversion, confusion, all of those unwholesome states, and you are cultivating moments of freedom, of joy, of presence, of connection, of heartfulness, of freedom. Okay, so enough for, for now. Um, you have about uh, oh, just a little over 15 minutes and we'll come back for one last sitting before, before tea time. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.